This is Safe, Stable, and Affordable, a Midwest housing podcast produced by the Polk County Housing Trust Fund in Des Moines, Iowa. Hi, I'm Matt Hauge, the Trust Fund's Outreach Director. In this episode, we bring you a presentation by author and housing expert Shane Phillips. We recorded this talk before a live audience at our Affordable Housing Week Symposium at the Iowa Event Center. Phillips is the author of The Affordable City, Strategies for Putting Housing Within Reach and Keeping It There. In the book, he calls for more collaboration among people and groups who are passionate about housing opportunity. Shane provides a practical, comprehensive overview of housing policy, which he breaks into three categories focused on housing supply, stability, and subsidy. In future episodes, we'll bring you more voices and opinions from our housing symposium and a behind-the-scenes interview with Shane Phillips where he answers audience questions in more depth. Make sure you follow this podcast on your favorite app to receive those episodes and find complete information about the Polk County Housing Trust Fund on our website, pchtf.org. But for now, here's Shane Phillips. Thank you my actual notes here. I'm from California. I know that California has very different problems than uh, what you are dealing with. In some ways, we're just a little bit ahead of you. Um, but just to, to think about why, you know, why what I have to say actually matters. In California, we like to say that we are at the vanguard of many important causes and innovations free speech, environmental protections, immigration, technology. Where we go, the nation follows. And I think that's all true to an extent. Um, don't love the bragging. It's a very California thing to do. Uh, but unfortunately, that leadership also applies to the bad as well as the good. And so, yes, we are at the forefront of technological innovation that is, you know, in some ways making the world a better place. But Social media, we also are kind of responsible for that. We've led the nation when it comes to integrating immigrants into our population, um, but that didn't happen overnight. Less than 30 years ago, we passed a racist ballot initiative, Prop 187, which uh, banned undocumented immigrants from accessing many basic government, government services, including public education. We're known somewhat fairly, uh, for pioneering the kind of car-oriented urban planning that now dominates most of the country and is, you know, in large part, a big part of why we are dealing with climate change. Um, but we've also adopted regulations for gas mileage that every automaker is, is basically forced to comply with so that they can sell cars in our state and everyone else has higher gas mileage as a result. So moving this to housing, you know, even though we've done some good things on housing in the past several years, we're also unquestionably at the forefront of destructive, inequitable, and downright stupid housing policy in California. I think you can look at any top 10 list of bad housing outcomes, whether that's homelessness, overcrowding, cost burdens, home values, of course, um, prices, and affordability, and at least five of the 10 cities will be in California. So unfortunately, where California has led on housing for the past few years or few generations, um, the nation has been following. As bad as things have gotten in my adopted home, as I said, originally from Seattle, most of the places I look at in other parts of the country are taking exactly the same actions or inactions. Um, 
that got us to this point in California. So California's uh, failures are more obvious, I think, because we faced a bit more pressure in terms of job and population growth compared to many other places. Um, so all the, all the things I have to say over the next 50 minutes or so, out of everything I have to say, if there is one thing I hope you walk away with, it's that you cannot wait to act here. You just can't. Without action, things will get worse, as Eric was saying. Um, and it's almost impossible to turn back the clock once they do. Cities all along our coasts, big and small, now have average home prices pushing the million dollar mark if they haven't already exceeded that. In Los Angeles, the vast majority of our residents don't have incomes that allow them to afford a home worth half that much. And yet we have the daunting task of somehow transforming ourselves into an affordable city. There's a quote that I often come back to that I'm sure some of you have heard before. It's the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The second best time is now. I think when it comes to the price of housing, Des Moines is still 20-ish years behind Los Angeles. So I would say count your blessings for that and start planting. California and many other cities all around the country, um, including in California, especially in California, have spent the past 40 plus years believing that if they simply bury their heads in the sand and don't plan for growth, that growth won't come, that things can stay essentially as they are, maybe forever or at least as long as the people who live in a community uh, are, are still alive. That strategy didn't work in California. It has never worked anywhere, and it's not going to work here either. If your region has opportunities to offer immigrants from other countries or migrants from other counties or states, then people will move here. And that's a great thing. If you have opportunities and affordable housing, many of the young adults who were born here or people who come here for college will choose to stay. And that's also a great thing. You can plan for them and turn that energy into something positive, or you can let that growth overwhelm you and turn you into a place where your children can't afford to stay um, in the neighborhood that they grew up and where you see outsiders seeking opportunity, which is supposed to be the American dream, as some threat to be despised and, and defeated. In 1965, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court decided on a case called National Land and Investment Company versus East Town Township Board of Adjustment. Uh, the township had increased its minimum lot size for each detached home from an original one acre up to a much higher four acres per home after a proposal had been made under the original rules to build on a one acre lot. And so thus the lawsuit. The case is somewhat narrowly about zoning, but it has a famous line that very clearly applies to housing more generally, urban planning more generally, I think just you know, the way we run our cities more generally. And that is here, hopefully we get to it. Zoning is a means by which a govern governmental body can plan for the future. It may not be used to deny, to deny the future, to avoid the increased responsibilities and ec economic burdens which time and growth invariably bring. Urban planning cannot and should not be used to deny the future. One other quote from that majority opinion uh, which came down in favor of the, the builder, really stands out to me as, as foresighted. It says, quote, it is not difficult to envision 
the tremendous hardship as well as the chaotic conditions which would result if all the townships in this area decided to deny a growing population sites for residential development within the means of at least a significant segment of the people. In other words, if a town, if one town is able to deny the future, what's to stop the rest from doing the same? The opinion was more than 55 years ago, but I think it perfectly predicted the challenges we're facing today. Too few are willing to take responsibility for growth and its burdens, much less treat growth as a positive thing to be harnessed for good. And the result is chaos and hardship. All of us are worse off as our neighborhoods stagnate. People lose a larger share of their income to rents every year. Fewer people are able to buy a home. Housing instability and homelessness rise. And the homeownership gap between black and white households is higher today than it was when the Fair Housing Act passed in 1968. We've stopped planning in many ways for a better future. And without a plan, we're, you know, in many cases, driving our cities into a ditch just blindly. But that's not inevitable. I know it's been kind of a downer so far. <laughs> um, and places like Polk County can set yourselves apart by embracing change, as I'll, as I'll talk more about in a bit. If there's a second thing I hope you all walk away with beyond this need for, for action, for urgency, it's some appreciation for how complicated this problem is, how many competing interests there are, how many different fronts we have to fight on all at once in partnership with others who share at least some of our values and realize it's not actually just one single thing. Um, but the complexity of the housing problem does help explain why I believe so strongly in the need to act with urgency and to build these coalitions that are diverse enough and powerful enough to overcome the obstacles that you're inevitably going to run into and I'm sure are already running into in your day to day. So while I will at some point mention a few specific policies um, you might want to pursue here, what I really want to focus on is priorities. And more than that, I wanna talk about how those priorities can communicate our values, help us build those essential partnerships, and ultimately lead to better policies, even if you don't consider yourself a policy wonk and the details of policy design don't interest you as much as they do me, for example. My framework for thinking about these housing priorities is what I call the three S's, supply, stability, and subsidy. Another common framework that many of you have probably heard is the three P's of production, preservation, and protection. I happen to like mine more, which for reasons I won't get into, but my name is Shane Phillips, and therefore my initials are SP. So either way, this housing game was made for me. I don't really care which one you subscribe to, they come down to the same thing. Um, the, the three S's can be boiled down to the following. Supply means building enough housing to meet current needs and future needs not just accommodating population growth, but also demographic shifts like our aging society, the growth in one and two person households, long-term economic shifts as jobs and the way we work evolve, environmental and social goals, and just changing preferences among other things. Stability means protecting vulnerable households and communities, whether that vulnerability stems from low or unreliable income, the many avenues by which systemic racism disadvantages many of our neighbors, 
larger economic forces like recessions and the flow of capital around the world, which is an increasingly uh, difficult thing to deal with at the local level, um, or changes to state or federal policy, um, you name it. So stability, I do wanna be clear, is not about stasis. It's not about things just staying the same. It's really about security, which I think we all deserve. Subsidy means spending money, straight up, pretty simple. Um, building homes is important for a variety of reasons, but without subsidies, it's mostly harnessing market forces. Uh, e even places like Paris and Vienna, which are known for social housing and publicly subsidized housing, they mostly rely on markets to produce the homes they need, uh, though they certainly subsidize housing to a greater extent than we do here in the US. And markets can do a lot of good. They do do a lot of good, but they also do leave a lot of people behind. They're not perfect. And so plenty fall through the cracks. And at the same time, policies designed to give more security and more stability to individual households or communities also do a lot of good, but leave some people fall through the cracks. Eviction protections, just as an example, um, are a great thing to have, but if you're chronically homeless, suffering from a mental illness, what you really need is help paying rent and social services, and those things just cost money. There's no avoiding that fact. So the underlying message of these three S's, which you might already be uh, picking up on, is that different people have different needs. And they also have different desires and hopes and goals, and those matter too. And if we're serious about the needs and wants and hopes of, of all of our neighbors, then we're not going to meet them by pouring all of our efforts into supply alone or stability alone or subsidy alone. We have to tackle all of these things. I don't think that probably sounds to most people in this room like a particularly controversial position to stake out. Um, and I don't really get a lot of pushback when I share this, but I do think that a lot of the work we do in advocacy, practice, policymaking, it doesn't really reflect that understanding, even though I think, you know, in our hearts, we all recognize that all of this work is important in different ways. Most of the time, we're kind of siloed away, working on our specific area of focus, right? To the extent that we get involved in other aspects of housing policy that maybe we don't do day to day, I think in many cases, it's often to point out why that proposal over there shouldn't be a priority or why it's wrong to do the thing this other person wants to do and why them wanting to do that makes them maybe even a bad person. If my focus is on building more housing, for example, I may be more likely to show up to oppose a rent control proposal that I view as harmful to supply than to make time to support eviction protections or COVID rent relief. If my focus is on tenant rights, I may be more likely to show up to oppose a new market rate development than to attend a public hearing in support of 100% affordable development. This is in general, I'm sure this is not true of all of you here, but I do think this is true of many people. I, and I still don't really have a competent answer for why we do this, um, why we can't always get along in our different housing domains. I think maybe it's just because many of us who do this work care really deeply about it. It's not just a job for me, certainly, and I'm sure that's true for, for many, if not all of you out here as well. It might be because the stakes are so high and how well we do at our job can be the difference between someone having a stable and affordable home and having no home at all. 
our policy preferences tend to reflect our, our politics and our, uh, our, our ide ideologies. And so when someone attacks those policies, it can feel like a, like a personal attack. And I think that kind of uh, agitation is, is, is worse now than, than it's ever been. And I think it's just, this stuff is really complicated and it's hard to wrap our heads around and we, we get it wrong sometimes on the things, especially that we don't work on day to day. So I think all of these things can play a role in the divisiveness of housing politics and the difficulty of arriving at effective solutions. And one of the main motivations for writing my book and the work that I do is to try to break through some of these log jams and show people that there is a path to working together, that whether your personal passion is supply, stability, or subsidy, or protections, or production, or preservation, you can make progress on that goal without undermining those whose passions lie elsewhere. So there are many, many people, I think I'm gonna come back to that later, who are comfortable with the status quo. And they're going to and have been fighting like hell to preserve it, they always have. And young people, poor people, and communities of color have borne and are bearing the brunt of that opposition to reform. Against the forces of the status quo, we have tenant advocates, we have YIMBYs, we have environmentalists, developers of all stripes, community organizations, homeless advocates, and service providers, faith groups, youth and elder activists, many others working to bring justice to housing for people of all different backgrounds. And together, all of these groups add up to a lot. They can be really powerful, but we're often getting in each other's way instead. And I think too often we're being essentially divided and conquered over relatively minor differences. So to bring this back to the three S's framework of supply, stability, and subsidy, and how I think it can be helpful. If we're going to find a way to work together and make real positive change, we need to start with the understanding that the work these groups are doing is important, all of them. You can be a YIMBY focused on home building, and there's nothing wrong with continuing to focus on that. That's actually kind of how I came to housing policy. But you should really understand the value of tenant protections and why a working class renter might be concerned about a surge of housing development coming to their neighborhood, especially if they live in a segregated or historically disinvested neighborhood. You can be an environmentalist focused on protecting nature or cornfields for that matter, uh, but you had better understand that if we're not going to build in those places, then we have to build somewhere. And there's no better place to build homes than in existing cities where it doesn't require paving over anything new. If you're concerned about gentrification and displacement, you should know that it's the very places that have blocked housing despite surging demand that have the worst overcrowding, rent burdens, and rates of homelessness. And it's the places that build the most that are usually performing best on those metrics. So taking these other priorities seriously the ones that maybe you're not thinking about all the time, and trying to understand why someone would feel so strongly about any one of them doesn't mean you have to agree with every position that they take. I very often find myself in disagreement with advocates in Los Angeles um, and across the state of California with whom I otherwise share a lot of values. 
I know rent control is probably not in the cards here for Iowa in the near term, um, but let me just use it as an example. If you're someone, again, who's focused on supply, you're probably already aware of some of the ways that rent control can undermine, it really can undermine the goal of building more homes. But if you take a tenant advocate's concerns seriously and you take it to heart that renters should have some measure of stability and security and really dignity in their lives and their housing situation, just like homeowners, you might start to dig a little deeper on what exactly is causing you to be skeptical of rent control. And you'd learn that much of the research on the negative consequences of rent control is from studies on what's known as first generation rent control, which limits rent increases even when old tenants move out and new ones move in. That kind of rent control is very rare nowadays, and frankly, for pretty good reasons. And most places have some form of rent control now that is quote unquote second generation, which allows rents to return to market rate when a tenant moves out. So the tenant, when they're there, gets stability, but the landlord is still able to kind of charge the market rate once they, once they move on. You might then realize, correctly in my view, that a policy of second generation rent control combined with an exemption for a building's first 20, 30 years or so of operation eliminates the vast majority of the negative impacts traditionally associated with rent control. And that's not, again, that is not to say there are no negative consequences, really every policy has trade-offs, but weighed against the stability that it offers your renting neighbors, you might come around to supporting it, at least in some form. And now you might have some new allies who otherwise could have been enemies. So I think this is a good time to dig into the, the three S's a little bit further. Supply, as I said, is ultimately about building more homes, but more fundamentally, it is about acknowledging that we live in a world of physical and economic realities and constraints. We can't avoid them. So on the physical level, a growing population requires a growing stock of homes. And housing is never going to be affordable if there isn't enough of it for everyone as a starting point. The United States has a serious and worsening inequality problem, and that extends to housing too. But you can't redistribute or you, you can't redistribute your way out of a shortage. When it comes to housing, we have a distribution problem and a scarcity problem, and we need to address both. In addition to that physical reality, there's the related economic fact that when housing is scarce, homeowners and landlords really hold all the cards. And they kind of necessarily hold those cards at the expense of home buyers and renters. The lower the vacancy rate falls, the faster prices rise, and the people who already have the most, the people who own property, end up pulling further and further ahead. And that's really the story of the past however many decades. We have a lot of evidence built up over the years showing that when cities build more housing, they're better able to keep rents in check. And it works whether the homes are market rate or subsidized, although we absolutely need a lot of both. And the benefits of home building on that rent price and price effect generally, they work all the way from the regional housing market down to the building next door. The story of American housing over the past couple generations is one, I think, of a nation forgetting how to build for its future. And we can see that in more than just housing, but I will refrain from going on a tangent about our disinvestment in transit 
and universities and public infrastructure and just focus on housing here. Um, this chart and, and, and what it says is really interesting to me. This is just new housing starts in the US over the past 60 plus years. Um, looking at just the, the areas between those red bars though, between 1993 and 2007, the fewest homes we built in any given year was 1.29 million. Over the next 11 years, from 2008 to 2018, the most we built was 1.25 million. So in other words, our best home building year of the past decade was worse than our worst home building year, uh, year of the pre preceding 15. And if you go back even further, you can see that you know, we had a much smaller population going back into the 60s and 70s, and yet we were building more housing then than we are now. So if an analogy is helpful, we can look at used cars. In the past two years, their price has shot up about 50% on average, from an average of about 20,000 in January of 2020 to over 30,000 today. As with housing, this is not because we're getting more out of our older cars. It's because of scarcity. Supply chain issues, some bad planning decisions by the automakers, uh, changing demand, all these things, they created a shortfall in production and an increase in demand, actually, of, uh, of new cars, which also saw their prices rise. And the impacts very quickly cascaded down to the used car market. Now, cars don't last as long as homes. And because people cycle through cars more frequently, um, we would expect a shortfall in production to affect car prices faster than you would expect a shortfall in home production to affect home prices. But it only took months for used car prices to climb by about 15% and just two years to get to this 50% increase. And we've been underbuilding housing throughout much of the US for over 40 years. So that should give you some idea of how deep a hole we've dug ourselves into. Here in Des Moines and the surrounding region, housing prices don't really point to a shortage just yet, I would say. I think, you know, I, I'm sure some would dispute that. And I think I don't know the area as well. Um, but that said, much of the housing you've been building is sprawl. And I think we all know that can't continue forever and ideally wouldn't continue much at all. Um, and I know that Des Moines recently also increased its minimum lot sizes and established pretty substantial minimum home sizes. And I, I now realize there are some elected officials here, so apologies, but that was a bad decision. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's gonna make it harder to provide housing that is affordable to people. And that's gonna you know, cause higher rents and make it harder for people to transition from renting to owning. But even if things were going basically okay here, for now, coastal cities like mine, I'm sorry to say, are shipping hundreds of thousands of economic refugees to lower cost areas of the country. And that may not have hit you yet, but it's very likely to eventually. Just, you can ask Boise, where median home prices have exploded by 60% in the past two years. Um, Someone was telling me about Bozeman, Montana, where the median home price there is something like $850,000. And I can promise you the people who actually are from there and have lived there a long time cannot afford that. 
And that's, you know, this is, you know, the economic refugees on the prices really matters, but there's also actual refugees who are being displaced by climate change, by war, by war that is going to increasingly be caused by climate change. Um, there are plenty of things you can do. You're gonna have to plan for some of these people at least, and there are plenty of things you can do. And I don't think you have to look to the coasts really for, for all of your examples, although I do think there are things to learn from there as well. Just to kind of tick off some here, you know, Buffalo, New York eliminated their parking minimums. Minneapolis, as you all know, and sort of Grand Rapids, I was told, got to bring up Grand Rapids because it's always mentioned here. Um, they ended single unit zoning, so single family zoning, apartment bans effectively. Durham uh, and Houston, many other cities, but Durham more recently, reduced its minimum lot sizes, reduced their minimum lot sizes. And, you know, again, as you know, many cities are allowing ADUs and missing middle housing and creating new opportunities for kind of smaller scale, quote unquote, gentle density. And, uh, you know, it's an opportunity also, this kind of development to build without land prices because you just, you've already owned the home and that saves you a lot of cost. And it's also an interesting thing because it's turning people, regular people into developers. We've kind of gone the other direction where for, for decades we've said, we dislike developers so much that we're gonna make development really hard. And the result has been that only the big developers who we hate the most can actually succeed in that market. And I think we do need to go back in the other direction. I don't personally hate big developers. I, I think you're doing Lord's work, but we do need more regular people getting involved in this. You need the, 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 the random dentist who has a little extra money building a, an aplex down the street um, and, and helping solve the, the problem themselves. So moving on to stability. Once again, this comes down to protecting vulnerable households. But to compare this to supply in a more kind of philosophical way, um, if supply is about acknowledging these economic and uh, physical realities and constraints, then stability is about acknowledging and living up to our moral responsibilities. You can argue that things like rent control and just cause eviction protections and right to counsel could reduce in some sense the supply of housing or rental housing specifically maybe and thereby make matters worse than better. And you might even be right in some cases if those are the only housing proposals on the table, maybe. But I don't think there's any question that if we're to continue evolving and growing and improving as a society, the future will be one where tenants can't have their rents jacked up 30% overnight and they can't be evicted for any reason or no reason at all. And where negligence or maliciousness on the part of landlords is not tolerated. Right now, renters, and I do focus on renters here because on average, they have half the income of homeowners, a 20th the wealth, and are far more vulnerable to displacement. Uh, right now, renters are treated like second-class citizens. When someone stands up at a public meeting to oppose an affordable housing project, and they start their comments by pointing out how they've owned their home for the past 40 years. We all know what's being communicated. It's a statement, conscious or otherwise, that the voice of tenants, of renters, just doesn't count for as much, if at all. And our policies, they absolutely reflect that understanding. 
that has to change. And changing it means prioritizing policies that improve household stability, especially for renters who tend to have it worst. I think probably the biggest reason that we've devalued renters for so long is just who they've traditionally been. They've been immigrants, people of color, the poor. But I think another reason is that historically, renting has been temporary. It was, it was viewed that way at least. It's just a stop on the way to home ownership and the full rights of citizenship that are kind of guaranteed to come with it. That's always been a lie to the tens of millions of Americans who couldn't afford to own or who were legally prohibited from doing so. But it was true enough for enough people that they could convince themselves it was at least possible for anyone. And I think that bargain is breaking down as home values climb further and further out of reach to more and more people. And I think that bargain, as I think I've made clear, was always indefensible. So, but you know, the upside here is that this breakdown presents an opportunity and a constituency of people who want us to do better, to do something different. So stability needs to be a priority. And while it is absolutely possible that things like tenant protections can have a negative impact on housing supply and therefore long run housing affordability, those problems are avoidable. Earlier, I shared how second generation rent control has far fewer downsides than the first generation version that I gave, that gave it its reputation really. The point of that is that how we design these policies matter and when we're aware of these different priorities and take them seriously, that we can design policies to be complementary where possible and at least minimally kind of interfering if necessary. A policy like first generation rent control doesn't get approved in a world where people are also interested in supply. And on the flip side, something like the urban renewal we saw of the 50s and 60s and 70s doesn't happen in a world where people also care about household stability and justice. I know these two cities are a far cry from Des Moines, they're a far cry from Los Angeles for that matter, but I do like to point to Tokyo and Paris as two sort of exemplars of the balance between supply and stability. They're also very different, I think, in how they achieve it. And so depending on your politics, depending on how you, you know, which you think is more appropriate here, I think you can kind of decide which, which one plays better locally. Tokyo is a pretty laissez-faire kind of market-oriented city in many regards, as is Japan more generally. And it allows an absolutely incredible amount of housing production the vast majority being unsubsidized market rate homes. Nearly 40 million people live in the greater uh, Tokyo area, which also happens to be the population of California. Yet Tokyo builds five times more housing per capita than California does. Polk County actually only builds about 30% less than Tokyo, um, at least over the past few years for what it's worth. So I don't think things are looking as bad here but you know, I can promise you at the very least that Tokyo is building housing that is a lot more sustainable and transit accessible and all of these things. So anyway, Tokyo is one of the most affordable big cities in the developed world precisely because it builds so much housing. But what's even more amazing to me is that they manage this rapid development while also having eviction protections and limits on annual rent increases that beat just about anywhere in the US. 
and they manage it because while policies like rent control can undermine housing production, they're almost never the biggest barrier. They're often an excuse, frankly, um, or that is used as an excuse. They can make things a little worse if you're already doing a bad job. Um, this is kind of the story in Los Angeles where people are proposing stronger tenant protections, but not anything to address supply. But if you, have, if you have a town, and I'm not saying this is Polk County, but just as an example, if you have a town where you can only build multifamily housing on 10% of the land, and it takes two years to get a permit for a project, and you might not even get one at the end of the, the deal, I can tell you that rent control, no matter how it's designed, is not the reason that your city is not building enough housing. Rent control and other tenant protections are more often a result of rising prices than their cause. They come after. And they don't fix the problem, but that's because they weren't the cause of the problem either. And you have to address the underlying issue. Paris is a very different place from Tokyo in, in a lot of regards. Much stronger welfare state, also reaches very deeply into the housing sector. In recent years, the city has ramped up its housing production to nearly double what it was just five or so years ago. And about a third of those new homes are social housing reserved for low and moderate income households. Even though roughly 60% of French households uh, own their home, which is not that different from the US where it's about two thirds, uh, their renters are far, far more secure in their homes. The median length of residence for a renter in the US is just two years. In France, it's six. French land landlords have to offer their tenants a three-year lease rather than the standard one year that we usually see here. And they even have a seasonal eviction moratorium that lasts every year from the beginning of November to the end of March. That's not just COVID, that's just because it's cold. And if France isn't willing to put people out on the street during their winters, what does that say about us? So the point is, these cities have managed a, a yes and approach to housing, not either or, not one against the other, that recognizes the need to build a lot of homes and to ensure that every household is able to enjoy some measure of dignity and stability and security. And they do it in very different contexts. And if they could find a way to make it work, I think so can we. So suffice it to say, Renters absolutely deserve some level of protections against exorbitant rent increases, no cause evictions, substandard living conditions, harassment by their landlords. These should be you know, a bare minimum. And I know some of these things are, are, are law already. Um, and this is partly about the policies, but it's also about enforcing them as I'm sure some of you are engaged in here. And I think we tend not to do as good a job at that in many cases. And, and I do wanna say again, even though I think the emphasis needs to be on renters, there are also homeowners who need assistance, often only temporarily, to make sure they can hold onto their homes as well. And obviously they should be helped too. So turning this to subsidies, which I'll be a bit briefer on because I, a lot of the important subsidy policies, frankly, happen at the federal level. And I don't think that's really our, our focus here today. Um, when it comes to supply, we know that the market doesn't work for everyone. When we do structure markets well, they can serve a lot of people and they can do so usually more quickly, effectively, efficiently than government, but they, you know, they inevitably leave some people behind. And even though stability protections are important, they also, they're really about protecting people from a worsening of their circumstances. They're not so great 
at really they have very little power to proactively improve people's circumstances. That's not a knock on them. It's just acknowledging what different policies can do. Sometimes you've just got to spend money instead to solve certain problems. And the reality is we already spend a ton, maybe not locally, but nationally. It's just that most of it goes to homeowners who don't need it nearly as much. So as some of you know, every homeowner can deduct their mortgage interest and property tax payments from their annual bill. Every home seller gets up to $500,000 in capital gains tax-free. Not every poor person gets help paying rent. Only about a quarter of renters who are eligible for some form of housing assistance, usually a voucher, actually receive any. Um, because homeowners are, homeowner subsidies are an entitlement and renter subsidies are not. Ignoring all the indirect subsidies to homeownership and, and building out on the, on the fringe and so forth, things like highways and oil infrastructure and that kind of thing, as a nation, we spend about three to five times more on various tax exemptions and, and subsidies targeted at homeowners as we do on renters, even though renters have just objectively far, far greater need. Unfortunately, Polk County doesn't have much control over that specifically, nor does any other individual jurisdiction. Most of these policies originate at the federal level and making any substantive change will require federal reform. But there are you know, some local strategies that you can consider at least and think about uh, that are outside the scope of federal policy. So one to look at is, and this is a, a challenging one, if it's already a, a, an existing policy, it's becoming increasingly okay to do in California, but it's to look at some of the wealth accruing to property owners and see if you can turn some of that toward more socially beneficial purposes, like the kind that the, the housing trust fund supports. What I mean by this is really unearned wealth um, or economic rents for the economists out there. This is the kind of appreciation that I've accrued on my home for doing nothing. I bought my home five years ago, it's gone up 50% in value. It's not because I did something personally. Um, I didn't make a bunch of investments and improve it. That's not the reason it went up in value. I just happened to have the good fortune of living in a place that's getting adding a lot of jobs, again, not responsible for that, and not building enough homes. Also not responsible for that, trying my best. Um, the, the fact is, I didn't earn that. Just as someone who bought a home in Cleveland in 1970 isn't responsible for their property value falling over the coming decades. The property tax is really the simplest and most direct way to collect and redirect that wealth. Um, and from what I understand here, you've actually got a pretty healthy tax rate, um, which is also good because it means you don't have to rely as much on income taxes, sales taxes, that kind of thing. Um, and I'm sure your approach, as they all do, has some, some warts in the property tax system. But if anyone comes proposing a California, Florida, Oregon-style property tax reform, you need to run them out of town immediately because it will cause so many problems. Um, so, you know, on that, I guess, kind of keep doing what you're doing. Another thing to look at locally is just, of course, how your programs are administered. So, because at the end of the day, that determines how far the money you spend will go. So this is surely preaching to the choir, but there's always room to improve on how low-income housing is financed and, and approved, low-income housing tax credit and so forth. Uh, and because probably half the people here know more than me about the details of LIHTC and affordable housing finance, I'm gonna stop giving any more 
details on that before I reveal my own ignorance. But one thing I do like to plug with low-income housing in particular, and I'm sure some have, have already looked at this, is establishing longer covenants or deed restrictions on new affordable projects. So in California, new affordable homes are deed restricted for a minimum of 55 years. And that's been the case for the past 10 or 15 years. Whereas in most of the rest of the country, it's 30 years. And when we made that shift, it basically means that we are not going to have these units going back to market rate anytime soon. Um, it's gonna take an extra 25 years relative to other places. Didn't cost us anything, really. Developers don't really care about revenues coming 40 or 50 years in the future. It just doesn't really make a big difference. I will say, um, you know, we're actually looking at, in some cases, expanding that to 99 years for certain kinds of projects. You can't just flip a switch and make that happen. I think especially with subsidized projects, there are barriers to this, so I don't wanna imply otherwise, but I do think it is something that can happen and, and eventually should happen all over the country. And there are programs like housing vouchers, which as I said, only about a quarter of people who are eligible actually receive one just because there's not enough funding dedicated to it. Um, and I know that I, your state legislature recently made it legal again, to discriminate against voucher holders, and that sucks. Uh, but the housing authority here can still do something, at the very least, by addressing, you know, real concerns by landlords. Landlords will tell you that sometimes, you know, if they need to get their unit inspected in a way that they don't for a non-voucher holder, someone has to come out from the city or the housing authority and inspect it before they can rent it out. The longer that takes, the more disincentive that is to for them to use that program. And now that they have the legal right to say no, you really kind of got to figure out, well, what can we do to make this a little more attractive or a little less unattractive at least. So I do think uh, also that, you know, every city and county that's interested in housing affordability, or just building a more livable community in general should consider how they can take a more active role in development. And I, that doesn't mean, you know, crowding out the private sector or replacing it in some way, but I do think there are things that can be done to support and complement it. Cities should be talking to property owners with underdeveloped sites, learn what's keeping them from selling. They should make sure their own properties, the, the city and county owned properties are developed to their highest and best use. You might even buy up some existing housing, multifamily housing, not just because it's cheaper than building new, but because it can be used more flexibly than traditional like low-income housing tax credit type projects. And none of these things is easy or free, but you can start things small and kind of build, try, try different things and, and not have much to lose early on. So I know that when people read or hear about the three S's, because I've seen it in, in policy proposals and so forth, they can be tempted to, to pick and choose. So they'll like the argument in favor of supply, a little more skeptical on stability or vice versa. And so they'll pick policies from the one they like and kind of discard, ignore the rest. Obviously I have no personal control over what people do, but I do want to be emphatic here that I think that is a huge mistake. You are not going to succeed if that is your approach. If supply is your priority, um, that's certainly better than prioritizing nothing and just trying to preserve the status quo, basically. But it's only going to carry you so far, and it's going to leave a lot of people behind. And the same is true of stability policies, and the same is true of subsidy policies. So I prefer to think of this 
as an affordable city three-legged stool, something that's sturdy and resilient when all the legs are in place, but remove any one and it just topples right over. So stability without, okay. Stability, or sorry, subsidy without stability can mean unnecessary displacement and disruption in communities. Without subsidy, it means poor households, again, being left behind. Stability without subsidy or without, without supply or subsidy is really managed decline. As I said, it doesn't really have the, the way, a way to make things better, um, as important as it is. Sub subsidy without supply will lead to rising costs as you pour more money into a fixed number of homes. Subsidy without stability will lead to many more people needing assistance who might not have needed it otherwise. If you don't fix supply and stability, you'll find that subsidies alone can become something of a, a black hole that can suck up an infinite amount of money. Um, again, look to California for a, a fine example of that. So when we focus only on supply, I think we're often creating a situation of diffuse benefits, but very concentrated harms. If I tear down three homes and build a 20 unit apartment building, evicting the original tenants along the way, without any kind of compensation at least, the net impact still might very well be positive. Cities need to build homes. Sometimes that requires tearing down an older building to make way for something denser, more sustainable. But who paid the cost? It's the tenants who were displaced. This is actually, I think, a pretty similar story um, to American manufacturing, where by offshoring production, we're able to save money as consumers on new clothes and televisions and anything else that is manufactured. But the cost was all the people who lost their middle class jobs and may not have ever found anything to completely replace them. The aggregate savings to consumers from these cheaper goods might be higher than the losses to the individual workers, but that's no comfort to the workers. And so we have to actually have a plan for them. It doesn't mean, again, that we don't make some of these changes. Maybe there are benefits to that globalization or whatever, but we have to think about, well, what are we going to do? Can we divert some of those savings maybe to help the people who are, who are paying the cost? And I think, so ultimately, we just have to find ways to mitigate downsides to progress, not stop them. Um, and stability and subsidy policies can do that. That shouldn't, that, and that should really just be standard practice, not just in housing, but employment and a million other fields. So on the other hand, when we focus solely on stability, I think we're engaging in a scarcity mindset. And this is really, it just feels increasingly prevalent, prevalent all over the place. It's, it's a mindset that implicitly accepts the notion that things won't really get better, and instead we can only really just prevent them from getting worse. And I think we should have a much grander vision for that here and, and everywhere. And that's why supply needs to be part of the mix. And when we focus solely on subsidies, I think we're fooling ourselves into thinking that money can buy us out of our responsibilities. And, and again, uh, look at San Francisco and their $6,000 rents for uh, an example of how that turns out. So ultimately, each of these three S's is a necessary ingredient, but you, know, you only turn them into a cake when you mix them all together. 
So that's my case for the three S's, why they're important for and, you know, substantive, economic, and, and social reasons. But to bring this all the way back to what I was talking about at the beginning, they also matter because the work we all do will only be successful in coalition. And we need a 3S approach or something similar to build that coalition. I don't need to tell you all here how hard it is to make change in this field in particular. There aren't enough YIMBYs to end exclusionary zoning all by themselves. And there aren't enough tenant advocates to enact rent stabilization by themselves. There aren't enough environmentalists to establish growth boundaries alone. There aren't enough affordable housing developers and funders to lobby for more funding alone. And on and on. There are so many things that need to be done and we need each other if we're going to win the fight, that fight for a better, grander future. We also need a big enough tent that we can persuade some of the fence sitters to join our team, because there's a lot of them. We need to have something to offer really just about everyone. And I think a lot of times we're so focused on our own constituencies that we forget that that's not going to be enough. We have to find a way for our priorities to coexist. And I'll just, I'll, I'll conclude here just saying these types of coalitions have been popping up all around the country. Uh, just a few examples. There's a diverse group behind Seattle's really ambitious housing affordability and live, uh, housing and livability agenda. Uh, the advocates and legislators who championed Oregon's missing middle housing and statewide anti-rent gouging laws. I think the end of apartment bans in Minneapolis was great in its own right, but especially so because it wasn't just on affordability grounds, but on an explicit message of racial justice. Um, and the same opportunity exists here in Polk County. So I encourage you with the time today and all the time you have uh, to make the most of this gathering and build those alliances for a more affordable and thriving region. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Safe, Stable, and Affordable. Remember to follow us on your favorite podcast app and be sure to leave a rating or a review to help more people discover this program. Our thanks today to author Shane Phillips for allowing us to bring his talk at our Affordable Housing Week Symposium to you via this podcast. Safe, Stable, and Affordable is produced by the Polk County Housing Trust Fund in Des Moines, Iowa. Find more information about our work on our website at pchtf.org.